This podcast is supported by Manitou Fund. We want to thank them for coming on board and, and helping to support this podcast. It really means a lot to us. Hey, everyone. Zach here. We just wanted to say that we hope you're all staying safe and healthy with so much going on right now in the world. Remember to be good to each other, and thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Fieldwork Podcast. I'm Zach Johnson. My name is Mitchell Hora, the most official, non-official, sustainable ag podcast ever. In the world. In the whole world. The podcast where we talk about the challenges facing farmers in sustainable agriculture. We're not going to sugarcoat it. We're going to tell you what's up. Today, we're going to look specifically at different ways that farmers can create income outside of row crops or livestock, aka alternative sources of revenue. So how about wind turbines or solar panels? Are those something that can actually provide consistent additional cash? We'll first hear from Patrick Duncanson, who is a Minnesota corn and soybean farmer. He installed some solar panels on his farm about five years ago. We'll also talk to Fritz Ebinger. He works on energy efficiency and renewable energy initiatives at the Clean Energy Resource Teams. That's part of the University of Minnesota's Regional Sustainable Development Partnerships and Extension. Part of his role is to assess which farms are able to put up solar panels and what are some of the other challenges that folks interested in renewable energy might face um, as adopting these systems. Yeah, lot to talk about here, so let's get right to it and quit babbling. So Patrick Duncanson, you're a farmer from South Central Minnesota, and our topic here today, we're talking about alternative sources of revenue and and kind of being creative on your farm and thinking about the other ways other than maybe just crop or livestock farming to make uh, to make some income. You've got kind of an interesting story when it comes to some of that. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your farm and then kind of lead us into what you've done with uh, solar. Sure. So um, in, um, in Blue Earth County, South Central Minnesota, we have a fairly traditional farm relating to growing corn and soybeans. We are uh, not very close to an urban market, uh, meaning we're about 100 miles from Minneapolis and that. So uh, truck farming or vegetable farming isn't real common in our area it's, at all. It's difficult to find a niche market if you don't have a population to pull from. I, I, exactly, yep. exactly. Um, we are very fortunate um, from a soybean standpoint is that we sit between Mankato and Fairmont, two large processing yep. cities, two large processing plants for soybean meal. That's a really good thing in that we have usually a fairly good soybean basis, but it also means that our alternatives to compete with that basis from a specialized soybean market are somewhat limited. Sure. In that, in that we're pretty competitive in the commodity business because our basis is strong because of those processing plants. Yep. We're also in about a corn-neutral county, meaning Blue Earth County has enough corn demand from surrounding ethanol plants, uh, even though there aren't necessarily too many big plants in Blue Earth County, uh, but strong feed demand. Uh, from a strong uh, livestock tradition and a, and, a, and a very robust livestock tradition, pr- primarily today uh, in feeding feeding hogs and producing pork. Sure. We're a very strong commodity county. Um, specialties are usually limited to soybean seed production, although this year we are um, also growing some non-GMO uh, direct export soybeans for a, a local seed farm that, that is very involved in that. Tell us about how you got into solar. So... Um, we'd been um, looking for ways to keep expanding our farm, to keep investing in our farm. We had been exposed to um, uh, solar energy and on-farm solar energy at at some of our um, uh, peer group and farm group meetings that we go to. And a uh, 
uh, a friend that uh, that I'd known for 15 or so years, and his uh, son started a solar sales company, and they uh, presented at one of the farm meetings, and we followed up at the meetings with a phone call and said, well, we would be interested in talking, and it took about two years probably after we started those conversations before we actually built and did something. Was that, so the two years that were in there, was that because you just weren't in a hurry? You weren't super interested, or was it because the process took that long? All of the above. All of the above. Okay. Yeah. What's, what's the time yeah. frame on this for reference? So we've been producing now for a couple of years. Okay. Uh, maybe three years. Three years. So yeah. five years ago was like kind of in the conversations. How, what was it looking like there? Or like, what was that thought process that got you to be like, okay, this seems like something that would be good for us? Well, um, first of all, it was about the time that, uh, that we were making a transition in our farm um, and um, we were looking for we were looking for ways to e- expand our farm outside of the traditional corn soybean commodity which seems a little bit like a treadmill um, either you need to be really really high volume and and make incredibly small margins or you have to figure out how can I get a little bit bigger margin on my smaller volumes to generate the income that we need to support our families yeah, and that's a challenge that all of us as farmers have is yeah do I want to be a you know, a, a, a multi-thousand acre farmer, and it seems like that's, it's never enough. It's a treadmill that once you get on, it, it, well, gee, the next size bigger John Deere combine or case combine would be nicer to have and would fit in all those pieces. Right. You can pick up acres, then you need more machinery to keep up with that, people. right? Which you need yep. more acres. You need more acres, you need more people, you need, more. Yeah, then, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And then we hit a year like 2019 where cropping plans and budgets and efficiencies in the field go out the window and, you know, we literally had 30 or 40 hours to plant a corn crop. Yeah. Not, not a week or two. Mother Nature just throws a wrench in yeah. everything you try and do, everything yeah. you think you have figured out. Yeah. It works out good on paper in the winter. So we were looking for alternatives and saying, well, what can we do? And so um, we're involved in a couple different aspects. Um, we have some on-farm solar, and we also have um, a, a relationship in a community solar garden, which are somewhat unique for Minnesota. So explain those a little bit more. So the on-farm is pretty traditional in that um, we have um, we, uh, we signed loan documents, and um, but it was 100% financed with the help of the partnership with them. So we didn't have to you know put up any collateral or anything, but we did have to personally sign and agree that we would pay these loan documents off. Um, and those are traditional units. One of them is mounted on the roof of our uh, big pole shed uh, that we have in our yard by our dryer setup. Um, and that's a 20 kilowatt unit. Um, that's a, uh, that meter is on an XL, um, XL Energy program. XL Energy also has, um, for certain sized units, uh, 20, to 40, um, 20 to 40 kilowatts. Those are relatively small, and they're subsidized quite heavily um, by um, XL and by the state in order to meet some of their renewables fuel or renewable standards. So that 20 kilowatts is enough for, like, your farm and a little bit more that's going off? 20 is is a kind of a nice one for a, I'm going to say, a, a small farmyard. But with Minnesota's net metering, um, it isn't exactly tied to how much you use in your yard. If you build, if you use more than you, um, um, if you use more than you generate, you just buy it. If you use less than you generate, you get a credit for it. Yeah. And at the end of the year, we settle up and um, we, we use way more energy than we generate from that 20. So we also have one, um, we also have a, a, a 55 or 60 kilowatt, I believe it is, at one of our hog uh, finishing sites where we have uh, 4,000 finishing pigs. And that's 
not quite enough, but it's fairly well matched to generate about enough energy for that hog site. It's a curtain-sided site. Uh, it's not power ventilated. Seasonally, we generate a lot of electricity in the summer from the solar, but in the winter, we use a fair amount of electricity at those hog barns. So it's seasonally, it's not really all that well balanced. Um, and that's, but it's fairly nice from a from a from a dollar standpoint. Maybe it balances out at the end of the day. Yeah, because those credits end up coming back to you, right? Yep. Are those able to fit just on the roof, or those are like kind of standalone? So we chose not to put them on the roof just because of the question of well, we've got a, the the question of with the finishing barn, how long are the roofs going to last? We had a small sliver of land that was part of the setbacks that we had to have, um, that um, from a property line standpoint and setbacks from wells, and so we had some dead space on the farm that we were able to use. Um, I love I love that site especially, even though it's on an REA and the return to the solar isn't quite as good, but it helps complete, I'm going to say, the full circle of what livestock feeding does for us. So livestock feeding uses the corn and soybeans that we grow. Um, we produce quality pork. We get the um, uh, the manure back that we put put on the farmland, and now we've got um, solar energy as part of the uh, part of the full circle. Yeah, that's very cool. Explain the solar garden now sure. too. Sure. So I'm gonna I'm gonna finish up a little bit with the, yeah, yeah. the with the, the 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 simpler units, the ones on our farm. The one that's on XL has approximately about we expect about a seven year payback. That after seven years in using the um, investment tax credit ourselves and paying for the solar, um, and the developer that we worked with, um, we don't have to worry necessarily how much it produces because our loan payments are directly tied to how much the unit produces. So if the unit, if our if our production estimates were off by 50%, our loan is just extended for a longer time. But the loan is through the company. The loan is, the bank. is, is, there is a bank tied to it. Right. So there had to be a bank that was willing to be a little flexible with the developer. Yeah. And so yeah. You, you've got multiple contracts. They're not all with Excel, right? No. So we have one with Excel and then we have one where we sell the, uh, where our meter is with Excel. Yeah. Um, and the other one is with, with, um, with an REA, with a rural electric co-op, with um, it's, uh, Benko. Uh, and the separate contracts are with separate panels. Yes. Separate yep. sites. Separate sites. Sure. Yep. Two separate sites. So how do you calculate a rate of return on this? The return on investment over time, how do you, how do you what's the process like? Looking at that when you're trying to decide if this is something you should go ahead with or not. Yeah, so you start building a spreadsheet. And yep. the developer that we worked with had those all built for us. Surprise, surprise. Oh, he made it pretty easy. Sure. Yeah. Yep. But very similar. I'm going to say the process that we went through was very similar to how we looked at building hog finishing barns. And that we looked at, well, what's the expected rent going to be? Um, so in this case, what's the, what's the production of the electricity going to be and what's that worth? Um, so we have to make... You know, in the short term, the next couple of years, that's fairly easy to make estimates. What are our electric rates going to be? We made the assumption that electric rates are probably not going to go down. Probably a fair assumption. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But every once in a while, you run into someone who will say, well, do you remember that time in the early 19-whatevers where we went through three years where electric rates actually went down? And there is a period of time in Minnesota where that did happen. Sure. And it was like, no, I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah. So, but so we may we have to you have to make assumptions and you have to make you have to trust in a system and you have to trust in a relationship. So we first of all had the trust in the developer and, and trust is verified. I mean you you don't blindly just follow somebody, but you you listen to what they say and you check it out and if it checks out, you you start to build some relationship with sure. it. So we started to build spreadsheets and we started to put together um, assumptions and cost factors. 
At the end of the day, it looked like the program on Excel would pay back in about seven years. The program on the um, rural electric co-op that we built um, at the other site would pay back in about 12 or 13 years. Those numbers were very similar to what we looked at when we were building hog finishing barns. So I looked at it kind of the same way and, and I had the same trust and, and that has worked out very well for us in that we actually went through those periods of times where we borrowed a lot of money yep. and built those finishing barns and we worked um, at very low wages in those barns for several years and put the money back into the barns and lo and behold, the barns are paid for and those barns put my kids through college. Sure. And and I think that one of the best financial investments I ever did farming-wise, besides tiling, was probably the investment in those finishing barns because it provided a return separate from corn and soybean production that complemented corn and soybean production. And it really made our farm um, financially stable. I think a lot of times that's the key is when, you, when you're a farmer or any business owner probably, if you're going to branch out and try to invest into something else, you know, make it something that's complementary to what you're doing. And increase the strength of what you're already focusing and on. And doesn't distract it. And and the right. timing was right. When when we did that, when we made those decisions 15 years ago or so, um, the timing was right. And and I don't know that the timing necessarily is as good today as it was then. I suspect that it's not. And the same thing with solar. Um, uh, when we did this a few years ago, the timing was right for us to do that. Sure. So the timing not only has to be right for you, it also has to be right for the marketplace. Yeah, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So so, so those, two, those two units um, will pay for themselves. Um, based on the amount of energy that they produce, uh, assuming that we can use the investment tax credit, which which we can, and they'll pay for themselves after a few years. The solar garden concept is is totally different from that, um, and and we need to uh, I'm going to say start over in the thought process and the discussion. The solar garden, because we owned a uh, a piece of ground that was next to a uh, uh, an electric transmission substation. Um, it was about a mile away, so it wasn't necessarily next to it. It was also next to the city of um, the small town city of Mapleton, and it was rather difficult for us to farm in that it wasn't an ideal piece of farmland for producing corn and soybeans. So we were we were in that. Um, even though it was a small town, I'm going to say that urban farm interface of every time we go up there at midnight to do tillage or something. We've got lights shining in people's houses. Every time we spray pesticides, we have to be very, very sensitive of small gardens and flowers. And it seemed like we would spray fungicides uh, late summer and someone would say, gee, your pesticide made my flowers wilt. Right. <laughs> of course. Yeah. yeah. Which chemistry-wise, farmers know that fungicides don't make yeah. flowers wilt. No, right. Right. Not, right. Not only that, the wind was blowing in the other direction anyway. So, right. So we had this piece of ground that was um, very odd-shaped. It had about 15 corners in it, um, and it was we couldn't use manure on it. We couldn't do a lot of things that we feel we need to do to sustainably produce a crop. And it also fit well with the concept of we can we can get rid of the power because there's a power line right next to it that we can hook onto. So it had a, a pretty good development, um, a pretty low development cost for the solar developers. So uh, several years ago, XL Energy was encouraged to develop these um, relatively small-scale solar gardens. The concept is rather than everyone in town or everyone in a community putting solar on their roof or on their garage or in their backyard, it's a lot more efficient to bundle them together in a unit that doesn't have shade trees and is in a quantity that can be built and managed more efficiently. So that's the concept of solar garden. And then subscribers, um, citizens, um, 
uh, uh, customers of the utility, and in this case, you have to be an XL customer to subscribe to the solar garden that we're involved with. And I'm not aware of any other utilities in Minnesota that are doing solar gardens, but perhaps there are. Um, so if you're a customer of that utility, then you can sign up to be in a solar garden. Um, you don't have to do any financial commitment other than agree to buy the energy for a long period of time. So it's a 20-year it's commitment. And, uh, and if uh, you don't have to you don't sign any financial commitments other than agree to buy the energy. And if you do that, you'll get what amounts to about a 10% reduction in your electric bill. So if you're normally paying 100 bucks a month for your house, you now would pay a net of about 90. Yep. Yep. So that's the solar garden concept. So with how, how big is this solar garden? Because I've heard of like a solar farm. Yep. Right. What's the difference there? So this is a solar farm that is used specifically for a solar garden. So a, um, So this is about... It covers about 30 acres of, of what used to be our cropland. Sure. Was this land that you owned? Yeah, this was family-owned okay. land. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And so um, we became landlords um, in a long-term lease with a developer um, for, the, for this solar project. And so we are landlords in a solar garden. And so you still own the property? We still own the property. If the, if the solar panels go away at some point, that is still your land? Correct. Okay. Yep. And if the solar panels don't go away at some point, it's, it, I mean, it's still our land regardless, right? Yep. Right. And in 25 or 30 years when the solar lease um, that, that we have with the developer is over, um, they are required to return it to farmland condition. So it's up to them to go out and... Remove all the stuff. That was going to be my question. Remove all the wire, remove all the, um, all the posts. Yeah. However, I, it, it, I'm also expecting that unless there's a new energy source developed, we will probably continue to be capturing solar energy. Yep. And this piece of farmland will probably never uh, go back to crop production. It will probably be in energy production for... Uh, the foreseeable future. It would make sense. Yeah. 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 Especially and and I'm old enough to not have to worry about renewing that contract. So it's it'll become somebody else's issue. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love the idea of it, and it's fun to hear about it and everything, but has, what are the negatives to doing this? Because obviously you drive around the countryside, and not every farmer's got a solar panel on their site, right? So what are the difficulties and the negatives to, to this thought process when you're thinking about it, if somebody's out, out there is considering it? So we had some headwinds, even though the utilities um, on their websites and in their public forums will say, oh, yes, we support renewable energy and we want to move in this direction. At the end of the day, they're not making any money on any of the renewable energy that we produce. In fact, um, there's a responsibility because of net metering laws that we still have access to power when we need additional power and they have to buy any surplus. So it's a little bit of an adversarial relationship with the utilities in general. Sure. So um, if it wasn't for strong public sentiment, they wouldn't probably be as supportive even as they are of, of renewable energy today. And yep. part of that is, is dictated by law, is mm -hmm. that they have to be supportive of renewable, small-scale renewable energy. Similar to other industries and other renewable Energy sources, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. If Definitely. it wasn't for if it wasn't for some, I'm going to say market distorting 
um, regulations and laws, yep. renewable energy probably wouldn't be – it wouldn't be where it is today. It would be really difficult, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. It, would, yeah. it just doesn't, pencil, doesn't fully pencil it out doesn't compared to fully some of the traditional out. ways. Yeah. 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 Another thing that made a difference for us is, is that um, particularly with solar, in order to fully take advantage of it, you have to be able to use investment tax credit. And sure. we were in a situation in our career and in our farm that we were starting to pay some income taxes. And so we were able to take advantage of some of those uh, investment tax credits that are part of the solar package. And so we okay. were able to use those ourselves rather than having to sell them off and have somebody else use them and get uh, you know, compensated for those credits. Sure. Um, solar and, and solar farms don't go without controversy, especially in rural areas. And as I drive up and down the road and I see a lot of these being developed in the last few years, and it's not just because – um, well, we got ours done. Now nobody else should do it. No, I don't feel that way at all. There's plenty of room. There's plenty of energy demand. There's plenty of sunshine. None of this takes away from anything we've done. But I do question whether we should be doing this on prime farmland. Right. And there is a great argument about, well, what's the best, what's the best land use? Um, and I'm, a, I'm an economist by trading. I'm a graduate of the University of Minnesota, um, uh, CFAN's uh, ag business degree. And I tend to look at things, well, how do we get the best efficiency and how do we get the best use out of it? And how do we also balance the ecology that's involved with it? So if we can somehow figure out, well, maybe here's a piece of land, farmland that isn't grade A prime farmland, is there a better use for it? Maybe we, maybe we can produce solar on some of that um, rather than converting grade A you know, farmland, that's the prime stuff for corn and soybeans. Right. And also, if we've got solar on it, maybe we can also do some other things that are good for society like pollinator habitat. Or sure. maybe we can graze livestock underneath it. Or yep. maybe we can uh, use it for a wetland bank or a wetland reserve and just, you know, raise the solar panels up, you know, a little higher so they're safe and secure from water. And we can multi-purpose and multi-use some of these lands. Yeah. Um, Particularly exciting when you go to other parts of the country and they're using solar as parking lot covers. Right. Um, it, particularly in the southwest where parking lot covers from protection from sun is really important. What's the feedback been like when you're talking, jumping back to the solar garden here on this 30 acres that's right next to a town um, where the, the guy was, uh, you know, maybe had mentioned that your fungicide had made the flowers wilt. Is that guy complaining about solar panels being in his backyard now? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Because now he wants to he wants to look out at well, I always wanted to look out at corn and soybeans. That's why I, you know, bought this house. That's why I bought this lot. Sure. Right. Yeah. And so um, there's a little bit of that. There's also the uh, neighbor that's hitting he thinks it's a driving range. Oh yeah. Ah. So he's uh teeing up and hitting golf balls out into the um into the um the solar garden. Into there. the solar garden, yeah. yeah is and that causing damage to He the... loves golfing? No. Okay. Ah. No. Hmm. But the developer that we worked with worked pretty hard. Um, uh, so these uh, solar gardens have to be fenced. Okay. And so um, it's a fairly benign chain link fence, but not all that attractive. But they worked pretty hard in doing landscaping and, and planting some, uh, um, some greenery type things in front of it so that in a, in a few years, the fence is not going to be really all that visible. Oh, cool. Um, so it's going to look like in your backyard, it's going to look like a neighbor's, yeah. um, you know, backyard. You're going to, you're going to have a greenery around it. So sure. They worked pretty good. They were very good. The developer that we worked with, even though the original developer sold the project, um, there were enough, there was enough goodwill and it, and it was the right kind of companies that they still cared about what it looked like in the community. Well, that, yeah, they have to. 
right? Yeah. I mean, they have to protect their reputation and your reputation. And and and, and thankfully, they did. Um, yeah. So we took a little bit of a uh, – we were lucky in that regard. We didn't foresee that happening, and we were lucky that it happened as well as it did. Sure. Um, but there's some real home runs. Um, so not only, you know, financially this is a little bit of diversity, but at the end of the day, our family can probably buy groceries anyway. Sure. Um, and, and we'll do okay. Yeah. Um, but it's sure nice, um, you know, for my nieces and nephews, um, especially the ones who aren't living on the farm, to know that we're involved and that we care about some things like this and that we're willing to look at alternative energy sources as a sound investment. Yeah. Um, so that, that's a good thing. Um, it's really good for our small town. Um, this was one of the largest construction projects Mapleton ever saw. Oh, wow. And um, it was, you know, several a several million dollar one-time investment. Right. Um in, in the community. So for the few months that it was being built, and it was built through the middle of, of a cold winter, although it seems like it, we've had several cold winters. But right. a couple of years ago, we had, uh, they, they built pretty much through uh, December, January, and February in, in a really um, brutal stretch of cold weather, and they worked almost every day. Um, several local people did get jobs uh, with the contractors, and then there were many people from out of town who worked there as well. So there was the immediate construction boost, but then there's also the boost to the local tax base. Yeah. And that's good for the small town as well. Across your farm, you are doing quite a bit of different sustainability, conservation type of stuff, but it seems like the solar aspect is a little bit more about revenue and diversifying revenue even more than the conservation side of things, but how do you think about that balance? Um, well, for, first of all, in, in our farm, we, we, we try to follow a triple bottom line approach. And we don't just say that, um, we don't just say that flippantly and loosely. We really do, we are committed to that. So I tend to look at farm profitability as the first piece, yeah. that, it, that if it isn't a if there isn't a way for the farm to financially sustain it, it doesn't matter. That's exactly right. what we've it talked about. It, it doesn't work. We talk about that all the time yeah. on this podcast. Yeah. yeah. So we looked at the solar piece probably financially first, and then it was like, okay, financially this seems to make sense. Now, are there other reasons why we want to do it? It was it was really fun to be involved in the permitting process with the city of Mapleton and the solar garden when the city of Mapleton got behind it and said, wow, this is really good for our town. Right. This is really good for the subscribers of XL Energy that can become members of the solar garden. Yeah. It's also good for our tax base, which helps Main Street. And it was like, it was so fun to be involved in a project from that side of the equation rather than the adversarial side about, well, this is good for our farm and financially we're going to benefit, but eh, it's pretty hard not to that good for everybody not else. Not that good for everybody else. And trust me, we've been involved in a lot of those arguments. Oh, yeah. Whether it be drainage or livestock production or any, any of the things that we do in farms. Sure. What's your advice to other farmers that are hearing this and considering solar? Talk to more than one developer. Yeah, don't just uh, listen to one guy and, and, and believe everything he says. I mean, verify it from somebody else. Um, so talk to a couple different developers, and, and it's pretty easy to open a farm magazine today and find out places where you can go to and someone will sell you solar equipment. Um, we were lucky in, in Minnesota in that we were protected and encouraged by state law, and the, the net metering law that we have in Minnesota is really important for making all of this very easy. I have a friend who's went through and, and built some solar uh, production capabilities on their farm in Illinois, and their equations and their questions were a lot different than what we had to go through, in part because of the net metering law that we have in Minnesota. Yeah. 
Really cool stuff. Um, we appreciate you coming in. This has been really, really interesting and a different kind of topic, but still a very important part of sustainable agriculture and thinking about a very holistic approach. Uh, so thanks for coming in and joining us here on the podcast today. Sure. It's yeah. been fun. Thanks. Thank you very much, Patrick. Really appreciate it. That was Patrick Duncanson, a corn and soybean farmer from South Central Minnesota. Uh, the script says, Actually says Minnesota. Stora. Minnesota. <laughs> Minnesota. I like that. <laughs> After the break, we'll hear from Fritz Ebinger from the Clean Energy Resource Teams. Welcome back. You're listening to the Fieldwork Podcast. Now to our conversation with Fritz Ebinger. Yeah, I'm, I'm the program manager for rural energy development at the Clean Energy Resource Teams. Yeah. Okay, yep. there you go. You said it better than I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. That's all right. Yeah. Can you explain to us a little bit about what, what that program involves, what it is they do, and, and what you oversee and what the goals sure. are? Sure. Um, you know, our, our job is to connect communities and people to the resources they need to implement clean energy projects. Um, and we work with pretty much all comers. Our, our, our uh, agenda is primarily to work with people where they are. So whether you are, I guess for this crowd, if you are a, a livestock farmer, you're trying to figure out how to better ventilate your barns more efficiently, we can coach you resources, coach you towards resources on that end. Um, if you want to put up solar, uh, I come out to the farm and I'll do a site assessment and kind of quantify your kilowatt hours and your energy use patterns and figure out whether solar is the right choice or whether you want to focus on efficiency first. Um, we don't do any advocacy, um, just to be clear about that. We don't show up at the legislature with any politics or anything like that. What we do do is try and give people information. So sometimes it's not good information. Sometimes we'll say, um, yeah, you know, like as much as you want to host solar energy in your community, you just have a horrible spot for it. There's no bandwidth. Sure. It's just not. It's just not in the cards. We were just talking with you know Patrick that has a. Um, a solar garden on one of his farms and yeah they had originally put it up and the neighbors were like well, I don't want to see that either and like and but he said that they're building or that they're they've planted trees and trying to make it look a little bit better but so right we don't want to like nobody wants to stand on the back patio and look at that. And, and stare at solar panels you 30 look feet at away squirrels right and your chickens yeah you want squirrels and chickens and i mean i like cornfields personally most jurisdictions in Minnesota uh, require low-growth pollinator species um, around the solar the solar farms under, underneath them. Yeah, um, yep. call those dandelions. <laughs> um, so that's that's been um, I think that's an aesthetic improvement. A lot of I think a lot of renewable energy is, is based on perception. How do you change people's minds about what it is? Because if you have, I mean, essentially you're taking. Uh, so, you know, a small amount of row crop agriculture out of production, putting panels on top of it. So you're returning and then putting low growth prairie underneath it. Then you're basically recreating what was there before. I mean, we had you know, eons of prairie before we decided to come till it up. Um, but what it does is it creates habitat for ground nesting birds. And I'm fairly certain there are a fair number of farmers that like to hunt. Um, and then little critters like that. And, uh, you just got to make sure people have a say in how it goes in. I think once you help them understand, um, you know, it does have improvements on things like water quality and you have deep, deep root prairie that helps with stormwater infiltration. Um, so one of the issues, um, is that you might be too far from a transmission station. Mm. Is that like, how common is that? How do you, 
How do you navigate some of those type of concerns? All right. Well, I'm going to split this conversation a little bit. So everything I was talking about before had to do with basically on-farm installation to serve the farm itself. Uh, I Weekly, I get about two or three phone calls from farmers who want to host uh, utility-scale generation. And in my mind, that's about a one megawatt community solar garden. Excel Energy has a community solar garden program where a developer will go out and develop a site, get a bunch of subscribers to the output from those panels. Excel Energy is required to buy the output from that solar garden and then do the offset math on the bill of whoever the subscribers are. That makes sense. It's like a triangular relationship. So a lot of farmers uh, have learned that that's a pretty good form of passive income. Um, usually the lease rates are from around, you know, 800 to 1200 bucks. The stuff that's crossed our desk is usually around a thousand dollars per acre per year just to host solar. That'd be um, pretty all right, Zach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the reason, well, you're kind of getting into the, getting to the punchline is that, you know, it takes up about seven to 10 acres. So it's, if you can, if you're lucky enough to host a community solar garden, it's basically 10000 uh, dollars a year in passive income. You don't have any, you don't have any inputs. You don't have to till it. Um, but in you know you might make a an enemy out of a neighbor. So that's the hopefully not. Generally, it's done the right way. Like yeah. People, people, there's well, there's plenty of resources. Like what out we've there. been talking about here is if you place it in the correct area, correct. like yep. use some ground that's maybe not great for yep. trying to farm corn and soybeans anyway. Right. You know maybe you put it there. Which. Generally, near a town, near a city, a lot of times there are acres like that, right? Because right. there's buildings around. and yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the developers are subject to those market forces, too. Um, so they're seeking less productive land. They're looking at crop productivity and disease. Um, I know for a fact a criteria they look at is, like, what's the likelihood that the neighborhood is not going to be happy about this? Because they know that it requires more administration on their part, uh, more um, public hearings, I think the worst case scenario for a lot of developers is to go to a county that has nothing on the books about solar because it's a black hole and they don't know what's going to happen. Uh, they may have a perfect site. They might be there might be, you know, for a utility scale development, they might have great transmission capacity, which is another requirement. Um, and, you know, but then the county comes to the county and they're like, well, we don't know, so we're just going to deny it until we can figure this out, or they'll set out a moratorium. Right. So <clears throat> just. Just sort of push it away because they yeah. don't understand it. It's easier to say, yeah. it's easier easier to say to no. Yeah. yeah, And that's un- an understandable thing. Totally. Yeah. You know, if you don't understand something, how heavy do you try to invest in something? Yeah, right? and I, so. I, should, I should clarify. Um, you know, every community is entitled to, to shape their community as they want it to be. You know, I think that's, uh, that's an important component. Generally, like, once we can have that conversation with folks and – you know, have citizens voice their opinions about how something should be, kind of set up the rules of the road, things go a lot more smoother. I think the worst scenarios are when few people feel like, um, you know, they didn't really get, they didn't really get their fair shake at how this should look or how it should go. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Did we? Uh, yeah, so there's the grant. So, yeah. so that's part of like this. So they come to you. Okay. So livestock farmer yep. or grain farmer that somebody is spending a lot of money on right. electricity, really. Somebody's got a high electrical bill, yep. comes to you, try to figure out, okay, what's the right thing for me? Should I put up solar? Should I maybe do wind? Should I energy ju- efficiency? First is energy efficiency. <laughs> yeah. Turn off your lights when you leave the house and that kind of stuff. And better Can you teach bulbs. that to my family? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just turn the lights off? <laughs> yeah, just turn the lights off. And then off we don't have done. to put up a windmill. Occup- <laughs> occupancy sensors. Occupancy sensors. There you go. There oh. you go. <laughs> 
So. Until you have your dog running around and turn well, it on all the time. You could, or your chickens that are in the Do you house. train the dogs to run around and just kill the light switches? <laughs> there you go. That's what we need. There you go. That's what we, we should need. work on that. Chickens that kill so, the lights. So you're figuring out, okay, here's the right kind of program that we want. Here's a grant that we can apply from yeah. through the federal government. Part of the difficulty right now is that the farm economy is so down, people don't have the, the income or even the tax liability, or oftentimes they're, they're still depreciating something. So... Um, but generally, you know, dairy farmers or people that wield a lot of capital in just their operation are probably good candidates. I take all comers. So I'll work with like a small vegetable farmer, uh, who has a CSA. Um, but oftentimes money can be a, a, a barrier. And you might be able to make a little bit of money on se- by selling your extra back to yeah. the grid. Yeah. And that, just to clarify, that shouldn't be the goal. I mean, it's not the goal, yeah. You yeah. don't want to sell, I mean... How does wind fit into this? Is there, I assume there's got to be times when wind is more efficient, and then what's the, you know, what's the installation and the maintenance like on on wind energy versus solar? So those, yeah, for those utility-scale um, developments, those are the 100, 200, 300 megawatt installations. Um, generally, you know, the farmer's role in that is primarily landlord, and it's like, it's, it's a good deal. Um, the... You know, just as rough numbers, they pay around probably around five thousand dollars a megawatt, and one turbine is going to be at least two megawatts now. So you're looking at about ten thousand dollars a year um, to host a wind turbine on your land. And then developers are smart; well, they will go after larger landowners to try and put as many turbines on that land as they can. So some some Under one contract, sure. Yeah, it, that is. Imp- you really got to be careful there. I would, you know, if if a farmer is approached by a developer, I would definitely suggest the farmer talk to an attorney. Um, have the attorney. It's like a fifty-page contract, and it's like for like forty years, right? So you want to be smart about that. Like if you come to me as a developer and say I want to put wind turbines on your farm, I don't know anything about that, so I don't know what to watch out for. Yeah, I mean there. Yeah, I would say developers are, are generally forthright, but it it always helps to have somebody help you know doing advocacy on your behalf too. So right, I mean you want to be smart about you know whether it's solar or wind. You want to be smart about tile lines. Like if a tile line is damaged, you know who manages that. Um, you want to be smart about how they put in the service roads. Uh, that can make I've heard that has created some headaches for farmers where they can't actually do a tractor turn anymore where they used to. Um, by and large, developers try and site along property lines and fence rows, so they don't have that that problem where they're blocking that you know the long the you know the long path of a tractor. Um, as as a uh, as a normal farmer, quote unquote, yeah. a normal farmer, if they were to come to you and say, "I'm I'm looking for you know some renewable energy on my farm, solar versus wind," I mean, what are you looking <laughs> at? I mean, I, that, that's probably a, a really long, complicated answer. There's not one easy way to look at that. But, but obviously, I think solar seems to be the popular one probably because, like you said, you, you build it and for 30 years it produces power, right? Is wind a lot more intense when it comes to the maintenance and the building project? And does it, does it take a lot more elbow grease just to build wind oh, and keep it moving? Um, most farmers I know don't. Uh, well, if it's, if it's like a... If like a small on-site turbine, uh, generally, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, sometimes the farmer has to crawl up there and, and grease a few things, um, or they have to track down, you know, a small shop that does that kind of maintenance. And there are, there are some groups that do that, but I just, we haven't seen, um, farmers in Minnesota have a lot of success with small wind. It's not to say there aren't good ones out there, but I mean, 
Um, you know, they, so generally, when you work with wind, you're working with a developer, big time. Yeah, like you're a not developer. putting up a, in, a, a personal windmill, correct? You know, for to handle one or two farms. Correct. Generally, it's you're you're going to be in the field of a wind farm, and um, you know that's that's how the developer is going to work with you. And, and it's it's you know important to have those coffee shop conversations with your neighbors too. I mean, the, there's a, once a developer comes to town and a bunch of landowners have been approached, I've heard that there is a lot of pressure just from the community or from the farming community to say, like, let's just not, don't be a stick in the mud about this. Because uh, developers will, they'll also make the threat, like, we're just going to pick up our ball and go down the road. They'll find um, somebody. Yeah, and it's it's not quite that easy. I mean, they're they're looking at that area because that area has transmission capacity. It takes sure. takes big, thick, power lines to host you know, 100, 200 megawatt wind turbines. Um, so they're paying close attention to, to the engineering of it. Um, but, you know, I, I do think it, it helps to, to have an attorney look at the contract and what you've been offered and advocate, advocate for things like, okay, is there a payment for a laydown? Like you're going to lose acreage or you're going to lose farmable land for at least a season if they have to lay down these giant turbine blades. Um you know, are you getting paid for the loss of that service road? Is it, you know, is that creating some kind of headache? Um, are there good neighbor payments for people that are around? So, yeah. yeah. Now, really good info is, like, just considering how else can I be profitable on my farm and look at sustainability at a really holistic system. Yeah. What are some other options besides having nine chickens? <laughs> nine chickens, a billy goat. A and, billy goat. Yeah, and a llama. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Weigh your options. You can do either one. Or you can do that llama, or put it in a panel. solar panel. Yeah. All right, or Fritz both. Fritz Ebinger, <laughs> yeah. thank you very much for joining us here today. Another good awesome. conversation. Thank yeah, you. I appreciate having you on. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And now it's time on the podcast to check out what's going on in our voicemail. Hi, my name's Colin uh, Chant. I live in Alberta. I really like listening to you guys' podcast. I'm just wondering, what do you guys think on someone wanting to become a first-time farmer? Thank you. Hey, Colin. Thanks a lot for calling into the Fieldwork Podcast. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for listening from Canada, too. Um, overall, you know, my first response on farmers or, you know, beginning farmers or people interested in getting involved in ag is like, that is fantastic. We need to have a lot more people getting involved in agriculture, especially younger people. And, uh, and I think more diverse, um, people as well, like from different backgrounds and just to bring new perspective in, um, but know that getting into like large scale production ag, um, maybe in the way that you, that you're overall envisioning, like that's going to be really, really tough. Um, there's a lot of startup cost in equipment and land. There's a lot of liability to cover. Um, so if you're going to go about it that route, I would definitely suggest finding a mentor, finding a farmer who um, is maybe looking at retiring relatively soon. Um, somebody who's wanting to invest in a beginning farmer, somebody that they can you know kind of mentor and help get started so that would be the route that i would look at you know if you're going to get into large scale row crop type farming um for a potentially um lower capital way to get started would be to look at a different specialty market um specialty crops um smaller scale like 
uh, vegetable production, something like that. Just be able to get going with a little bit less land to get going, potentially less equipment. Um, however, some of those uh, operations can definitely get pretty expensive too. Can definitely come um, with a lot of startup cost. And you want to make sure that you have a market from the beginning. That is the crucial thing. You can grow all kinds of different stuff, but you have to have somewhere to sell it or else it does you no good. Other thing to definitely look at um, is beginning farmer programs. I have no idea what options are available for Canada, but for the U.S., we have a really great program for um, beginning farmers. You can get beginning farmer loans through FSA, um, Farm Service Agency. That's what I was able to do uh, when I was coming back to the family farm. I had the opportunity to buy 40 acres and was able to get a beginning farmer loan to provide low interest financing for that piece of farm ground. So basically just a easier line of credit to be able to attain. Um, I did have to show you know, that I had some ag experience and that I've got, you know, but my degree counted towards that, my internships counted towards that, some of my experience on the farm counted towards that. Um, so you might have to build up some of that from within the ag industry for some of those type of programs, but uh, there's multiple options available. Keep us in the loop and uh, good luck. That's it for our show today. You can find us as always all over the place on social media at Fieldwork Talk, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And of course, you have learned a lot of useful things from this podcast, so share it with all of your friends. Subscribe to Fieldwork wherever you get your podcast. Leave us some high dollar reviews. Oh yeah, tell people that we are the greatest podcast people ever. They will figure that out for clearly, themselves, clearly. but make sure you make that clear to them ahead of time. Well, we're not uh, the only ones that make it possible and make it sound so awesome. Thanks to the people who make the show possible. Andy Baxter, Amy Scotches cole Claire Jones, Noah Boston, Christian Schmidt, Eric Romani, and Lauren Humbert. And our live in-studio band music is written and performed by Johnny Vince oh, Evans yeah. with help from Corey Schreppel. Our website is fieldworktalk.org. Connect with us all over social media and yeah, hit us up on the website. Yeah, until next time, don't soil yourself. (laughs) You okay? Are you okay? I got a piece of that... uh... Piece of water? (laughs) Water's got rocks in it up here. (laughs) (laughs) That's good for the gizzard. (laughs) It is going straight to my gizzard.